Today on Let Me Be Frank, Bishop Caggiano talks about the National Eucharistic Revival. Why do we need it? And what are the plans uh, on a national level? And then also, what are his plans for the Eucharistic Revival here in the diocese, particularly as part of his plan for the One? A big part of Eucharistic renewal and revival is changing the culture of society and specifically of the church and on an even more micro level of each parish. And so Bishop Caggiano is going to talk about that as well. A lot of really great information today. So keep us on the radio at 1350 AM and 103.9 FM or keep us on your phone with the Veritas mobile app. You can get the app at the Apple App Store, the Google Play Store, or at veritascatholic.com. And if you enjoy Let Me Be Frank, be sure to rate us, review us, please give us a five-star rating and help us grow the show and reach more souls. Let Me Be Frank, of course, is brought to you by a grant from Foundations in Faith. Foundations in Faith embraces innovative approaches to funding pastoral care programs in the Diocese of Bridgeport. Resources focus on energizing, lifelong faith formation and discipleship, and fostering a commitment to justice and accompaniment with our most vulnerable. From seminarians to retired priests, from baptism to last rites, from suburbs to inner cities, the reach is broad, the impact is meaningful. For more information, visit them on the web at foundationsinfaith.org. Okay, here we go. This is Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. I'm Steve Lee, and it is my pleasure, as always, to introduce Bishop Frank Caggiano. Steve, good morning. Morning, Excellency. It's hard to believe we're a couple of weeks away from the start of school. Yeah. First of all, it's yes. very depressing for young children, I know. This is the time it's- when they get into melancholy. I remember, that was, I remember when I was a kid, I dreaded the assumption. Not because I oh. dreaded Our Lady, but because I knew school <laughs> right. was like only a couple of weeks ago. It was like so depressing. <laughs> yes. And I'm sure all the parents feel the same way. Of course they do. Yeah. They want their children <laughs> home all the time. <laughs> no, actually, I mean, the other flip side of it is, you know, it's because they don't have the, you know, whatever they want to do kind of thing. But I think kids, by the time you get to the end of August, do want structure again. Many of them are just kind of like looking for, to be entertained. Right. It's just, it's yeah. better to be in school. I saw recently, though, just as an aside, uh, Independence, Missouri is the largest school district to go to four days a week school. Interesting. Lengthen the school days, uh-huh. but only have it four days a week. And it, it has retained all their teachers. Wow. That's all post COVID, you know, at home, yeah. hybrid, four days. But I'm not sure that's a good idea, personally, but I'm not an educator. But the, you got to keep yeah. kids engaged, right? It's like in the faith. You got to keep them engaged. Otherwise, they regress, in my humble opinion. Yeah, I agree. You know, I'll tell you, Excellency, my um, my middle son, Chris, this was the first summer that he was able to get a, a job, summer job. Oh, good for him. Because he finally is old enough. Good for him. And I, he, before job, before he got his job and it started, he was kind of just like, I'm bored. I'm bored. What do I do on board? And I'm like, well, go do something, you know? But now that he has the job, it's like, okay, he has, mm-hmm. I guess, structure and mm-hmm. purpose and mm-hmm. work is good for the human soul. Oh, I absolutely agree. I absolutely agree. I do. Structure is very important. Routine is very important. 
without a routine yes. psychologically, it's very taxing on an individual. I'm not suggesting that your your life be wrote all the time, but you need mm -hmm. some guideposts every day that kind of like run in the same direction. It takes yes. a lot of psychic energy to reinvent things. That's why COVID was so psychologically taxing, not only because of isolation, but because you had to reinvent everything that we yes. took for granted. It was exhausting. Yes. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So now, what are we going to talk about today? What do you think? Let's, well, I, there's a lot of stuff happening. Oh, there absolutely is. And part of today, I want to just fill in our listeners as to what's going on in the background in the diocese. But I think I've been asked a lot of different questions about the Eucharistic revival. I've gotten letters about it, asking our observance of it. And I thought, you know what? Let's spend some time talking about it. Let's talk about it on the national level. Then let's talk about the Diocese of Bridgeport and our participation in it, because we will obviously participate in it. It's centrally important. Yes. Great. So let's talk about the national effort. Not to get into details, but the National Eucharistic Revival is an initiative of the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops to try to reverse what is clearly a decline in both the participation of Catholics in the celebration of Mass every Sunday as well as their understanding, that is, in a way, their faith in the Eucharist and what it means as Catholics. And therefore, we are in the second of three years of this process on the national level. We in the diocese are going to be starting our, so we will be later than our brothers and sisters in many other dioceses and archdioceses for a reason I'll talk about in a minute but we will do the same thing. We will have a three-year process. So why is it being done? Well, I think anybody who goes to Mass recognizes some takeaways. There are some exceptions, but generally speaking, the congregations and their size have diminished over the last 30 years. In some places, they have not recovered from COVID. Those who are going to mass in the perhaps simple majority tend to be older individuals. So one of the alarm bells going off is to say, well, what happens in 20 or 30 years? Like who actually will be coming to, to participate in, in the mass? So that's one level. There's a deeper concern, of course, is that we say the Eucharist is the summit, right, and source of our life as Catholic Christians, and rightfully so, because in the Eucharist we encounter, in an unbloody way, the one bloody, irrepeatable sacrifice of Christ on the cross, and we enter into the grace of his resurrection. So... If there are many believers who do not feel that this is something they need to attend or want to attend or feel a need to attend, then we have a fundamental problem, right? In a sense, you're cutting yourself off from the very food that's supposed to be the, the balm, the, the help, the source of grace for everyday Christian life. So it's almost as if you're an athlete training with no food. Well, how long is that going to last? Yeah. And that's part of the reason we see the disengagement of many Catholics in the contemporary secular society, because I don't think they have the fuel that comes from the Eucharist. 
I think there's another fundamental issue going on here, and that is if the number of Catholics attending Mass is minimal, then the very fiber and unity of the Church is being compromised. Because where in the end do you actually experience the unity of the Church if not at Sunday Mass? Where you can be rich and poor, you can be a person of every color, ethnic, and race. You can be really smart, perhaps not so much. <laughs> you can understand your faith like Thomas Aquinas or intuit it. Whatever it is, we're all there together. There's a basic fundamental equality that's rooted in the fact that we're made in the divine image. That divine image has been now perfectly recreated in Christ. We could, that is healed in Christ. He's the perfect human person who offered himself so that we who are broken, but not junk, we're broken, but not junk, right? Can ourselves participate in that glorious rebirth, recreation, new life. So part of the reason we're seeing so many divisions in the church is because we are not at the table of the Lord together. And that has to be healed. Unfortunately, Another issue here is that coming to Mass and more especially coming to communion have been convoluted. One of the great benefits of COVID is that it reintroduced the notion of spiritual communion, which we had lost in the drive to invite everyone to come to receive the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus. Now, spiritual communion says, I, for whatever reason, cannot receive the Lord in the Eucharist, and yet I know he comes to me, and therefore he comes with his grace, and I open my heart to that. In a sense, whether you do it in the pew, which is what traditionally one would have done, or you come up to ask for a recognition, which is what we say, quote-unquote, is the blessing, but in fact, you're blessed at the end of Mass. It's really the recognition that you're receiving the Lord in your heart, not necessarily right in the Eucharist that there's tremendous value to that. And in a sense, we lost it, having regained it in COVID, we lost it for a long time to say that if I do not go to Mass, if I go to Mass and do not receive Holy Communion, then why bother going to Mass? But in fact, they're not the same thing. Right. And... So there needs to be recaptured. And it is not like Pope Francis recently said, coming back from Lisbon, that the church invites everyone, but the rules, the, the, the norms, the disciplines of the church are not in and of themselves meant to discriminate, but they are the discipline of the church. So that if you're not ready to receive Holy Communion, if you're in the state of grave sin, or you're living in a life that prevents you from saying, you're welcome and you should come to receive spiritual communion, but not come up to receive Holy Communion, and it's self-policed, as we've spoken about before. Yes, right. right. Anyway, so you could see all of these issues swirling, and so the bishops have decided to do this three-year process. Leadership, the faithful, leading up to the Eucharistic Congress. And my guess is the Eucharistic Congress is going to be something we'll do like every 10 years. It'll be regular. We haven't had one in, oh my gosh, I think 80, I forget, 80, 90 wow. years. Right, so we're doing it on a regular basis. Okay, so 
all of that is great. And all of that in our own way, based on all the resources the USCCB has given, we will do the same. But there are some issues that I think we also have to look at in order to make this revival long-lasting. What I don't want to happen is that it's event-driven. Right. It means you go to the mission, you go to a, a conference, you go to the Congress, you go to this, and it's like a, an oasis moment, but it doesn't change the fabric of one's life, and it doesn't change the culture of the church. So I'm big, as you know, about changing the culture of the church so that you are formed holistically in the faith. One of the things that I think we have to look at is the old dictum, lex orandi, lex credendi. Now, you could translate that many different ways, but two ways would be simply to say the law of prayer is the law of faith. Or the church believes as she prays. So one of the questions that we have to ask ourselves if we want a long-term revival both of spirituality, of formation and knowledge, and participation in Mass is, honestly, ask ourselves, how do we pray when we come to Sunday Mass? And does that in and of itself need to be looked at, right, with the cold eye, to be not changed, but to be renewed? For my contention is that in many places, the Mass is not being celebrated in its fullness of both intellect and heart and will. That is, to engage the mind through beauty, engage the heart, and to send people with the purpose into the world until they come again to be fed. It's not always happening. And part of why people are disaffected from the Eucharist is simply they do not believe, they do not feel that they are being quote-unquote fed, even though they're receiving the body, blood, soul, and divinity, mm -hmm. right? So part of what we're going to do in the diocese is use the three years, which I'll talk about in a second when we start, is to look at how we celebrate Mass, right? Look at every element of it. Look at its music. Look at the homily. Look at the way we gather ourselves. Look at the sacred space. Look at our posture. Right? Look how we receive Holy Communion. Um, the use of silence. The use of reverence. The use of, uh, of chant. The use of, of the history and patrimony of the church. To be able to lift the tide so that there is an experience of both horizontal and vertical reality. So that I acknowledge I'm here as, myst as part of the mystical body of Christ. I'm not ignoring my neighbor, which in some right. cases used to happen. No, I'm gauging my neighbor, but I'm also here to worship God. You know, it's interesting. Right. In, uh, in the, um, during the World Youth Day pilgrimage, we went to a city. And now, to be honest, right. I've even forgotten the name of it. So this is my early senility, right? <laughs> but it was in the Fatima portion. So it's a city not far from Fatima. And it was a medieval walled city. And we stopped at the door of the cathedral. And at the door, there were, so you have the doors of set, and then you have the arches. It's a very Gothic church. And you had, what did you have? You had the 12 apostles on the other side. Above the door, you had the four evangelists. You had Our Lady seated above them. Then you had the Lord 
right, in his crucifixion, right, with the Holy Spirit above it. And then you had all of these angels around it. So I, I, I realized what I always knew, but I realized in a very di a different way that that was all created in a time when people could not read and write so that they knew that when they entered through the portal, they were entering into a new space, a different space, an invitation to something more than the ordinary. Yes. My question is, how many times does that happen in the contemporary world? So it's not just a question, in my humble opinion, of teaching the faith, which we need to do. And we will give that opportunity for everyone to learn in depth what, what we believe about the Eucharist, about the Mass, about the sacrifice of Christ, all the rest. But you got you to engage more than the mind. Mm -hmm. Yes. To move people to action. And so part of what we're going to do is we're going to kind of engage, and it's going to be a hard conversation to have, about even sacred space. Is it beautiful? Now, of course, beauty's in the eye of the beholder, but I mean, it's got to be more than four whitewashed walls. <laughs> right, yeah. And that came out because it was a false choice to say that we gather as God's people and therefore the focus is on us. No, it's not. No, it's not. The sum total of all the people of God put together without their Savior and Redeemer are going nowhere. <laughs> but Christ will go nowhere without his people. It's a false choice. It's both. It's both, right? So, so we are delaying in part because we have a lot of legwork to do to set the stage for not just what the conference wants us to do, not just for the intellectual reaffirmation of the faith, but also to be able to do some more groundwork to change the culture in which we, we celebrate right, the faith of, that we have in the Eucharist, in the Eucharistic yes. world. Does that make sense so far? Uh, makes total sense. Mm -hmm. Yep. Then there's something else that we have to talk about. Okay. And that is the intuition of faith. Okay. Now, I'm going to go out on the limb. There have been countless people in the life of the church who had an intuition of faith in the real presence, who could not express it in words, either because they didn't have the words, otherwise they couldn't read, or because they were engaged in the mystery of the Eucharist, which is ultimately a mystery, that engaged them on such a deep level that <laughs> their words were insufficient. See, there's a difference between knowledge of the faith and intuition of the faith, and we need both. Mm-hmm. And we have work to do to try to convey not just the theoretical, theological understanding of the Eucharist, but what that actually means for me and how it will change my life. That's an intuition that's bodily. Remember, intuition comes through the body, not through the mind. Like common sense comes through the body, not through the mind. It's not cognitive. So how do, we, how do we reinstitute an intuition? So you may say, well, all right, Bishop, that's kind of, I stop already with the intuition, but like, what's, why is that such a big deal? Because when you are two years old, you are capable of intuition that you cannot express. 
but you are not capable of cognating it. So when you become seven or eight years old and you are going to receive Holy Communion, we want these children already to be intuitively believers in the Eucharist, even though they can't express it in words and it will take them a while until they express it in words. And even when we express it in words, we're not fully expressing the fuller mystery because it's beyond words to describe completely. And therefore, we need to talk about how you engage intuition. And like they are doing on the national level, my suggestion would be adoration is an act of worship that is powerfully intuitive. Like you don't need to say anything, but there's a, there's a, there's a, a, a knowledge, there's a reaction that changes your life. So in the end, what are we looking for in the Diocese of Bridgeport? What I'm looking for is to begin the Eucharistic revival as part of the one. The one is designed to create this groundwork, to answer these questions, to lay the long-term architecture that will begin to change the way we presume we see all things of faith, how we engage in our prayer and with one another, and how we worship the Lord. It's to be able to engage the mind, the heart, and the will, truth, beauty, and goodness in everyday life in extraordinary ways, so that what? So that we could engage everyone, invite everyone effectively to come to Mass every Sunday. The goal of the one is the Eucharistic revival. And the delay is simply my concern that we do some more spade work so that this one golden opportunity is not lost. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's where we're at with that. And do we have time? We have time to talk a little yes. bit. Where we're going. Yes, we okay. do. So mm-hmm. for us, we began my talks. I began. So now about the one come September now, we're going to get much more practical. I need to be able to point people directly to where they can start engaging their minds, their hearts, and their wills. It's almost like boot camp. (laughs) And we're going to work with the willing. I'm not forcing anybody to do anything. Mm -hmm. But if you're serious about your spiritual life, then it's time to get practical, right? The pivot point for us is the week between Pentecost and Corpus Christi, the two weeks between Pentecost and Corpus Christi in May into early June of 2024. Because that is when the Eucharistic procession comes through our diocese. It will come Pentecost evening, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. And if I, if I may say at that point, the one would be a year and a half old. And so we're going to tell people, all right, let's lift up the destination. And we're going to have a series of events in those three days. We're going to walk the Eucharist throughout the diocese. And for the two weeks, we are going to have celebrations parish missions, uh, opportunities for preaching, adoration, so that in every corner of the diocese, the single greatest focus we're going to have is on the Eucharist. And hopefully people would have done some of that initial basic training so that with that habit being created for the next three years, 
in the word of God, in the celebration of the sacraments, in the celebration of the sacramentals, and would eventually allow you to come to Sunday Mass in a renewed way. Study of the fathers, all the rest, the apologetics we talked about, all that are seeds, right? In my relationship with the Lord, my accompany with my sisters and brothers, which ultimately culminates at Mass. So those two weeks are the salvo. Now, for the six months prior, so from really January, the beginning of January to the end of May, there will be opportunities for the leadership of our diocese to go deep within Eucharistic study and spirituality. Because when we get on the other side of those two weeks for the next three years, right, to lead all God's people, the leadership has to be at has to be adept at this, have to, has to be involved in this, has to be already working on this in their own personal lives. So there'll be what I call the propedeutic period. Right? And we're still working out the details. So by the time we get to October, we'll have those all worked out. And, I, and to think of it then, for the leadership, which is about 12,000 people, so we're not talking a small group of people. I want opportunities to engage the mind, the heart, and the will. It's really what it comes down to around the Eucharist yeah. and everything else that we hold as in faith. And then coming out, we want to do the same thing for all God's people in a sustained, logical way over three years, which will bring us then to 2027. Wow. And if we talk about changing the culture, which we'll talk about at the uh, on the other side of the break, this is an essential piece to change. It's not the only one, but it's an essential piece to changing the long-term vibrancy of the culture we have as Catholic Christians, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it sounds like uh, right now you're kind of um, tending to the soil to make sure that the soil is rich and fertile. And then you're going to train the leaders to be the, the sowers. Mm-hmm. And then come uh, uh, Pentecost through Corpus Christi, that's when the seed will really mm -hmm. be sown mm -hmm. in that rich soil. Mm -hmm. You know what I would love to see in a few years? And it will take a few years. I would love to see, for example, that we take a page out of our Protestant brothers and sisters playbook. And every Wednesday have Bible study in every parish in the diocese. And that Bible yes. study could very well be the Sunday scriptures of the next Sunday. That's a seed. That's engaging the mind. But it's also so that when you come to this, to Mass, everyone who comes to Mass, who who's participates, will be able to receive the Word in a profoundly different way. Yes. We're going to give birth to a school of homiletics. More about that in September. And the school of homiletics will be tutorial assistance to every preacher in the diocese. Right? Things we can learn in common, things that a person needs to work on individually, as well as a branch of what this is, which is opening up the power of scripture for all God's people. Because you could be the best preacher, and if you're distracted on your phone, or you're distracted in your world, you're not ready to hear what the Lord is, is telling us through his holy word, then you need both sides of the equation. Mm -hmm. So that's yes. also part of the legwork before we launch the Eucharistic Revival. Yeah. And there's more. There's more. There's awesome. much more, actually. But Okay, so I can't he wait to hear more about it on the other side of the break. Um, so uh, let's take one quickly. This is Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network, 
and we'll be right back. If you're concerned about your end-of-life plans, searching for a Catholic cemetery, or have loved ones who are buried in one of the 14 Catholic cemeteries throughout Fairfield County, now might be a good time to begin planning for yourself or for other family members. Call one of our family advisors at 203-742-1450 and select option 5 to leave a message or visit www.ctcemeteries.org. Many people don't realize that they can be buried with their deceased loved ones, even if all of the family's in-ground plots have been taken. The Diocese of Bridgeport Catholic Cemeteries provides in-ground burials, as well as columbarium and mausoleum options. This makes it possible to unite your family together in the same cemetery, and it's an opportunity to build a bridge for your family back to the church. Talking about this issue is not easy, but pre-need planning makes your wishes clear, reduces cost, and helps your family avoid difficult decisions at a time of grief and loss. You can start your planning now by contacting one of our family advisors at 203-742-1450 and select option 5 or visit www.ctcemeteries.org. We can guide you through the options, regulations, and considerations to help you make the best decisions for your family. The number is 203-742-1450 and select option 5 or visit www.ctcemeteries.org. Okay, welcome back to Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. Uh, Excellency, I think you were on a roll. I didn't want to Yeah, I'm sorry. Off, I, I, I go on. You can, you, you can quiet <laughs> me down. <laughs> All right, so then before we go into this other half, what, 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 like what are the signs of success for a revival, a Eucharistic revival, or I'm going to say renewal, right? I don't like the word revival, mm-hmm. but renewal. Well, what are the signs of success? Well, obviously, the hope, the hope would be that you have more people going to Mass. I mean, that's going to be kind of obvious. Right. But is it? Is it? See, these are the questions that haunt me. Quantity, quality, and the hope is for both. Mm -hmm. Again, a false choice. And therefore, I would want to see a huge rise in those coming to Sunday Mass. And I want the engagement in that celebration to be life-changing. In other words, I I want it to be a real communion with Christ. And I want it to change the very fabric of every person's life, including the pre-celebrant. That is how we're going to show the secular world a different way. Not that we are an institution with rules that says you have to go to Mass every Sunday. I want everybody to go to Mass because they want to go to Mass, not because they have to go to Mass. I don't have to love my mother. I've said that many times. I did. Or my father, for that matter. I mean, so certainly increase, but, the, but, but I want the increase and I want the level of engagement. Now, engagement, again, doesn't mean that we clericalize the laity in ministry or we 
you know, involve everyone in some way in an active way because passive participation in the sense of participation through silence can be far more life-altering than participation through another means. So we got to discern all this and it's different in different communities, right? Yeah. So the second sign of success is a greater tolerance and welcoming of the variety of ways we pray, even at the Eucharist, that this attitude of judgment that my way is best and your way is, your is not or this or that, it, it, it begins to heal because in the communion with Christ, you and I will see that Christ calls them too to this diversity and variety. He is in charge, not me. He is. So some of the disunity we have should begin to heal, right? And then, again, this is my pet peeve, but if I had to choose between an intuition of the faith and the ability to explicate the faith, I would always choose the intuition of the faith. And I was radically, as you know, I was radically formed by my upbringing. I'm not sure my mother could explicate the faith in the Eucharist. But if there ever was a person I've ever met who believed in the Eucharist with all her heart, it was my mom. And so I think we, we need to bring everyone to the intuition and as many people to the cognitive ability to explain it. And that's why polls are always suspect hmm. when you poll people. Because a poll can get, come up with any conclusion it wants. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I'm, I'm a cynic when it comes to that. I don't care about the poll. The only poll that matters is when we get to eternal life. You get through the pearly gates, you win the poll. That's it. That's the only poll that matters, <laughs> right? The real question is, who do you say that I am when the host is held up in consecrated host? And I think it's all about changing the culture that we have, that we have devolved into. We now have to evolve back into culture. That's why the one is born. So let's talk about culture. Let's talk about the secular culture for a second to draw a parallel because I've talked about it so often, but I haven't really spent a lot of time actually diving into it. If I were to ask you, Steve, what are the elements of the secular culture around us? What would you say? How would you describe it? Yeah, I I would say that the the driving force behind secular culture today is um, uh, self centeredness mm-hmm. and relativism. Mm-hmm. I would agree. I would agree that basically there is a radical imminent n- nature to it, that the transcendent has been set aside, that it's only what is before me, what's material in front of me, and what I can engage or serve my purposes. So the still point of my life revolves around me in the secular world because there is no horizon, there is no transcendent, there is none that they would wish to admit to, except this amorphous uh, spiritual awareness, whatever they call it nowadays, mindfulness, whatever it's called nowadays. Right. Right. That really is just self-absorption. It's really what it comes down to. It's just taking your own spirit and and divinizing it without any other referent, which is lovely, but it doesn't go anywhere. (laughs) It doesn't, because as soon as you develop cancer that's inoperable, suddenly that mindfulness does what to you? 
Yeah. I, I'm sorry to be yeah. so blunt, but what does that do for you? When you, when you sit in your chair in the middle of the night and this is it. And if there's nothing other than me, you have got to be kidding. I want to be in that position. Yep. Right. But how, but you see, that's the tenet of the secular world. But how is it a culture? See, this is the question. So how does it form people? It doesn't say, you don't go online, you don't go in advertising, you don't listen to mass media, you don't, you know, look at the things that the secular world does, it's music, and say, overtly, your life is all about you, right? So this, mm-hmm. it doesn't do that. Culture is, is, is given a vehicle through different means, right? Yes. So how do we intuit those means? See, in the secular world, I think it's through music and through art. It is through literature. It's through mass media. It's through social media that the messages of the secular culture are conveyed indirectly, almost subliminally, almost pre-consciously. Even the way one dresses, the clothing we wear, conveys a message. And then that secular culture being powered by by individuals, some individuals, some companies, some institutions, and many governments who need to stay in power by keeping the majority happy, what they basically do is create a libertine sort of environment. So you believe abortion's wrong? Great, don't have one. You believe it is wrong? Right, you don't believe it's wrong? You can have, you don't, yes, you don't believe it's wrong? You can have it. You believe it's wrong? Don't have it, right? But you don't have to do anything with him. There's no social consensus. There's no common good. There's just armistice among groups, mm-hmm. right? So that allows, even that subliminally says, well, then if it's really just about what I hold, then it really is all about me. And you don't have to use words to do that. Right. And we could go on and on and on. Right. So why that's important is because people are being formed and not realizing it. They're being, they're entering into a culture that's, you said, self-centered, relativistic, materialistic, consumeristic, because it serves a larger purpose that they're not aware of. And even if they are, perhaps they don't want to fight against. So culture conveys belief, norms, attitudes, uh, the ways to behave that are more powerful than just the cognitive explication of it. So what, how would you assess the culture that you find in your typical parish? That's a question. Yeah. Because in many ways, if we do not create an alternative, vibrant, equally convincing, if not obviously in the end, far more convincing, culture using all the means by which we can convey the truth, engage the heart, and activate the will, then we will not create true formation in the 21st century. 
we will condemn people to the formation of the secular culture. That's simply the truth. So the goal that we are audaciously trying to do is create that alternative culture that is so compelling, so inviting, and true to what the, what the Lord has asked, that there is a fighting chance to begin to form people in such a way that we're not always um, reactive, that we can be proactive. And therefore, I think that's essential to the Eucharistic revival, not just being revival, but a transformational explosion for the life of the church. Yes. And what are some of the things we're going to be doing to change that culture? All right. So let's break it down to the three categories. One of the things we're debating, and I want to hear your thoughts, and I would welcome the thoughts of our listeners. It's extremely important, and I mean this sincerely. I need your help to answer this question. If it is true, and evidence seems to indicate it is true, that the vast majority of people now of every age are leaving the faith because they have questions about the things we believe and don't have the ability to ask them without judgment, and don't get the answers that make sense to them, that they are basically going to leave. How do we answer those questions? How do we create safe spaces? And how do we train our people to be able to give them the answers? And again, interestingly enough, the answer need not always be cognitive. Mm-hmm but it also can be an invitation to experience something that is transcognitive, if I could use that word, or supracognitive, that could engage one's emotions or one's feelings or one's experience or, uh, uh, or your, one's intuition that then allows you to give words to it, right? So it's almost like if a person is looking for the answer, well, why do we believe the Eucharist is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus? Depending on the person, depending on how the question is asked, depends on, on the way you can probe it, you may sit down and give the teaching of the church, or you may invite the person to come to adoration with you for 15 minutes and then have the explanation. Do you see what I mean? Yes. It depends yep. on what yeah. the person is. Yeah. Right? So how do we how do we how do we create this for? Do you have any ideas, Steve? Yeah, I mean, right off the bat, it feels like it needs to be both. It's a lot of what you're already talking about, Excellency, creating this culture where someone goes, someone who doesn't know the teaching goes to mass, but the the ex- experience of mass is so radically different to anything else that that person sees out in culture, so that he he or she sees the Eucharist being held up by the priest and the reaction of the people in the pews is so clear that that is that they are worshiping at that moment and then as he's at that as that person is leaving mass he can be like wow what was the deal with that and then you could talk about john 6 and first corinthians and whatever it is from there but lex credendi yes 
I think also for our young people, we have to struggle with creating opportunities, particularly in our high schools, to create time in class to ask questions and to have our teachers, our administrators, and our chaplains be able to answer those questions and invite them to more conversation. See, because in the end, when, you at, when, when you're formed by a culture, it gives you many implicit answers to basic questions in life. And then the culture gives you the opportunities to put that into words. And it creates a logic of its own making so that all those answers begin to form a worldview that may be totally wrong in the sense of it may not have, it may not actually tell the, t the, the test of time. It may not be able to do that. But for the moment, it seems to hold together. When a person asks a question, what they're really saying is, I understand this, what, 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 I've, what I've learned, what I've been formed out there. You tell me why you hold something different. See, and they don't have necessarily the benefit of the culture that formed that worldview. So they're literally on the middle of a bridge. Yes. So part of our training has to be, well, what part of this culture that we, we, we're renewing, we're going to invigorate? You got to go first to help the person to put their foot into a different culture. Yes. Which is a divine one. Yes. So that's why you hear over and over again, people say, well, goodness, you know, it's service. Kids like service. Yeah, of course they do. And then in World Youth Day, as I said, but well, what makes this Christian? But you see, so the question could be answered by an invitation. It could be questioned by an answer. It could be questioned by, by a moment of prayer. It could be answered in so many different ways because we have a whole culture that we want to bring to this person to say, this is your home, yes. not this. Can I just say, Excellency, mm -hmm. couple, uh, just recently we went to the um, Perpetual Vows of the Sisters of Life. Oh, yeah. When, it, was, uh, it was uh, Transfiguration, wasn't it? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yep. It was during World Youth Day. Yep. And and uh, afterwards, you know, there's a huge crowd out on Fifth Avenue in front of the church, and we're all talking, and someone brought up the fact that Sisters of Life, wherever they go, because of the joy that just like radiates from them, they always draw questions and conversations from people, even from people who aren't Catholic or who don't even know why they're dressed like that, uh -huh. you know, but something is attracting these people to go and approach them and talk to them. And it just occurred to me that it's not just supposed to be the sisters of life who do that. Mm -hmm. Like we should all exude something different that makes people say, what is going on here? Every parish should do that. That's my point. Yeah. For the Eucharistic renewal to have an explosive effect, every parish needs to look at its own life and ask itself the question, do we live an inviting, exciting, compelling culture of belief in Jesus Christ as the members of his body? Do we engage the mind, the heart, and the will of every person in our parish? And do we accompany them? If a parish says, yes, we do that, I can guarantee you it's going to grow. And there are many people saying, you know, this bishop's out of his mind. 
you know, you come to my parish. It's like one step above going to a morgue. Well, so was Lazarus dead. <laughs> right. <laughs> the, the, nothing is beyond the reach of God to be renewed. There's yes. got to be nothing other than the humble determination to open ourselves to Christ and to offer him who we are, take the opportunities there to encounter him. He will do everything else. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So one of the things I've talked about before that I'm going to raise in this context are the guilds. The guilds are not being created simply because they're medieval or they sound neat. Ooh, guild. <laughs> <laughs> right? But the guild is, is meant to be spiritual companionship. Right? So it's an, it's, it's an association of, of disciples. It would be the like vocation of like mind or like interest that see w one aspect of the culture as an opportunity to enter into the fullness of that culture. But it also can create a space where questions can be asked. So my hope is, with the St. Luke Guild first, and then others to follow, we are going to be able to give individuals a space where they could ask questions. Mm. And once again, they are going to have to create chapters of guilds in local areas. So the St. Luke Guild will be all the healthcare professionals and workers, right? But eventually I would want a chapter in Norwalk, a chapter in Stanford, a chapter in Bridgeport, mm -hmm. a chapter in wherever. And it doesn't have to be 100 people. It could be 10 people. But they're praying together maybe every six, eight weeks. They're having a meal together. They're asking questions. And someone accompanies them in faith. Yes. That renews the church. Right? So Absolutely. now what we did was we're creating each of them is going to have a crest. And the crest is going to be uh, uh, enshrined in the cathedral. Right? So the Sacred Heart Guild will be the first. It's already exists and growing. Mm -hmm. St. Luke will be two. And then eventually for all the guilds, there'll be their crests across the back of the church. Because that's a living reminder in the mother church of the diocese that these communities are essential members of its family. No matter what, they don't have to be geographically in the cathedral. Yeah. Cool. Is that neat? That's cool. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Do you know how many guilds there will be? Excellent. Oh, I would guess before I retire, I would guess at least 12. Wow. At least 12. But I, I could keep thinking of them. Mm -hmm. right? Like, for example, public school teachers who do a great job of trying to teach our kids under very hard circumstances, right? particularly in the cities. You try to be faithful to your faith. You have a curriculum that says something else. What do you do? That, that's where a guild comes in, where you could pray yeah. and, and, and mm -hmm. come together and really raise the issues that you struggle with, with other like-minded individuals, someone who can help you. Um, that would be of an inestimable value. But it also creates, it's interesting, it also creates an entree into the culture that is ultimately Christ's life in our midst. Because a teacher in a public school forum is not there to proselytize, but is there to answer questions and raise questions. And I'm sure in the hearts and minds of many students, 
those, those teachers that have been formative, that have truly taken an interest, that have shown real concern, that, are, that without words are teaching the fundamental values of Christian life, are themselves introducing the culture of the church indirectly to its students, even though there is no names and no words. It's simply because mm -hmm. of who you are, like you said with the Sisters yes. of Life. Yes. Those are all seeds that we talked about in the one. See, if I lived long enough, which I won't, my goal would be to take the secular culture and to expose it for what it really is. I don't have to attack it, just expose it for what it is and let people make their own choices to bring everything that's hidden to the surface. But in order to do that, you need an alternative that is more vibrant, more alive, more engaging. That is the ultimate goal. And the Eucharistic revival is just the match to the, to the dynamite. So the ship has launched. We'll have much more to talk about it in the weeks ahead. Yeah. Yeah. So it's simple and straightforward. <laughs> yeah. Simple. <laughs> but, 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 but what I the mean, heck? Let's do it right. <laughs> no, I love it because in actuality, the, the, the idea and the vision is simple and straightforward. But it's going to take a lot, which you are putting into place, to put it into action. Yeah. To, 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 let me allow me just to end with this. There are two qualities of which I struggle with personally that are absolutely required. Patience is number one. And trust is number two. Hmm. Patience, because this will take a long time to have the effect we all want. And trust, because there's always the tendency to have the cult, the secular culture's premise. One of its premises is you are the protagonist. If the world's about you, you are the protagonist. Yes. It's to trust that I am not the protagonist. And ultimately, neither are you. And neither are we. And to trust that what may look like a failure could actually be a success, and what looks like a success could actually in the long term be a failure. Only, only Christ will know that. To trust. Yeah. Amen. Okay. We'll take our final break and come back on the other side with a listener question. This is Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. Be right back. Hey. This is Matt Sparazza from The Tangent. Each week on The Tangent, my co-host, Father Sam Kachuba, and I go on tangents to show how intertwined the Catholic faith and our culture really are. With guests like Scott Hahn, Dr. Greg Pitaro, Kristalina Everett, and so many more, The Tangent is always entertaining and informative. Check us out on Fridays at 12.30 on 103.9 FM, 1350 AM, anytime on the Veritas app, or wherever you get your podcasts. God bless. All right, welcome back to Let Me Be Frank with Bishop Frank Caggiano. Uh, Excellency, here is uh, this week's listener question. It says, Bishop Frank, I know you can make something a third-class relic by touching it to a first-class relic. May we touch the same thing to multiple first-class relics? If I have a rosary that touched a first-class relic of JP2, can I also touch it to a first-class relic of another saint, or is that not allowed? 
Well, to be honest, uh, I'm, I'm not sure there's any particular rule or law. I'm not sure why one would do that in so much as you would want to be able to, to, to pray for the intercession of the one saint, right? Mm. So to, to, to do multiple in one, you know, maybe a little bit confusing. But just for the sake of our listeners, very quickly, when we speak of relics, we're speaking of objects that have a direct association with the Lord or, or the saints of the church. And a first-class relic is a portion of the actual saint, right? It's a fragment of yes. their body. Second class is something they possessed, like a book or a clothing. And then the third class is something that touched, right? A first, second, or even third class relic. And it's all about the material object being the vehicle for grace. So relics don't heal. It's not magic. God yes. heals. But the disposition of the person to receive the grace is made more manifest precisely because of the relic's presence, right? Of, 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 of your openness to realize you're connected to the saint yes so that's basically why relics are so much a part of the life of the church and thank you for that explanation too because yeah it's a good reminder it a relic is not a, like a, a like a rabbit's foot <laughs> you know it's as you said it's a vehicle to graces from jesus Okay, so if you have a question for Bishop Frank, you can send it in on social media or you can email questions at veritascatholic.com. Bishop Frank Caggiano is on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and so is Veritas Catholic Network. And we'd like to thank our sponsor, Foundations in Faith. A grant from the St. Therese Fund for Evangelization makes it possible for us to bring Let Me Be Frank to you. Foundations in Faith is committed to supporting and transforming pastoral ministries in the Diocese of Bridgeport, and you can learn more about their outstanding work at foundationsinfaith.org. Excellency, you got a lot on your plate, um, but a lot of exciting things happening here in the diocese. Yes, 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 yes. All right, let's pray. Okay. In the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord our God, as these days of summer are quickly coming to an end, we ask that your Holy Spirit bless and guide the efforts that we will together do to bring new life and renewal to your church. Especially bless our children as they are preparing to return to school, that the months of their instruction will be a time of great blessing. And may the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit come upon you and remain with you forever. Amen. Amen. All right, my friend. Okay. You heard Bishop Caggiano emphasize his desire for you, our listeners, to reach out and share your thoughts on how to transform the secular culture into a vibrant Catholic culture. I invite you to let us know what you think by leaving a comment wherever you're listening to this podcast or by sending us a message on our website at veritascatholic.com and click connect or by emailing us at info at veritascatholic.com. Let us know what you think, and thank you, truly, for your support in our work as we preach the gospel to more and more souls.